We're in John chapter 12, verses 36 to 50. So open up your whatever you've got and let's have a look at that uh, together. John chapter 12, verse 36 to 50. And there are Bibles there. Feel free to grab one of those if you want to do that. Nobody's going to see you walk across there. Well, they probably will actually. Okay, here we go. John 12, 36 to 50. While you have the light... Believe in the light that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. And here's that word from Isaiah Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, They could not believe. For again, as Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Thanks, John. Um, Friends, this morning I come with you with a bit of fear and trembling. I'm just going to be upfront and honest with you. Uh, This passage has been a real wrestle for me this week for various reasons. Uh, And this last night, uh, when my... This usually happens. By the way, if you're a praying praying kind of person, um, pray for everyone who preaches on Sunday mornings. Different things happen. And usually in our family, what it looks like is one of the kids gets sick. Um, So last night, my uh, youngest got a temperature at midnight. And uh, I'm lying there and thinking to myself, Oh, Lord, I'm afraid about the passage I'm about to preach. And the words that came to me is, who are you afraid of more, me or them? Uh, So would you pray for me uh, as we spend some time in this passage? Um, For various reasons, I'm nervous. uh, And I hope and pray what you will hear uh, is a a pastor along with the leadership team who love you and care for you. Uh, And more importantly, you see God's heart, not mine. Uh, Let me pray. Lord Jesus, I want to thank you for who you are. I thank you for that reminder already as we've read and listened. 
that the word in front of us is not actually about us, it's about you. Pray, Lord, that my words will not be of any distraction and anything that was said, that was planned, that you don't want to be said. Uh, please don't let it be said. Holy Spirit, I thank you for the wonderful reminder in Colossians 1 that Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And through your power, I ask, you will help me proclaim the truth to point people to Jesus. In your name, amen. Um, this morning, we come to a, a pretty significant passage in the Gospel of John. And as you know, we as a church have been taking our time through the Gospel of John, unpacking uh, what it means, the depths of it, the, the truths of it. And particularly if you've come today visiting, uh, you, we want, we've been constantly saying over and over again this one thing, and you see it right here in the front door, uh, that our greatest desire is whether if you're a seeker, whether someone who is already a following, maybe you're a bit a weary Christian, that you will realize that it's only in Jesus Christ that you will find true life. And then when you discover Jesus, uh, you are also meeting the one and only true God. And over the last few weeks, particularly as we've been going in through the Gospel of John and John 12, we've been seeing this is the turning point in the story of Jesus in the Gospel of John. Jesus has been making it very clear that he is going to go to die. He's going to die on a cross. And we saw that he talked this language of glory. And it was totally countercultural because glory in this context is death. That he's going to be lifted up on a cross. We saw how people were following him because there's a motivation that's driving them. They've seen the signs and John explains those signs in the Gospel of John. And now things are dramatically changing. Now from here on, all the way to the cross and Jesus' resurrection, there's a dramatic thing that's going to happen. What I want you to see is I want you to picture it's as though you and I are about to enter the discipleship school of Jesus. What it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And that's what we come up to particularly in this passage. Uh, John read so wonderfully for us in John 12, and we saw, starting in verse 36, talking about if you believe in the light, that means you become sons of light. And then there's this contrast that's given to us. People actually, uh, Jesus goes, hides himself, and people actually don't even believe, even though the signs they've seen. There's an unbelief there. And then we see an Old Testament passage that's been quoted. Two Old Testament passages from the book of Isaiah to explain the reason why there is this unbelief. But then there's the other contrast. There are some who do believe, but there's something that's holding them back to declaring publicly that they believe in Jesus. Things have dramatically changed. Uh, and the statement that Jesus is hiding himself, uh, it's the author's way, John's way of saying, hey, things are shifting now. His public ministry is stopping. Uh, the next time his public ministry, in a sense, will be on a cross. Right now, the public ministry stops. It's ended. God has made known and making it very clear who this Messiah is. This is Jesus. And we have two groups. One group is in total unbelief. While the other, they believe, but they're fearful. And there's that language of glory again in this passage. 
Now I want you to imagine, right? This is the discipleship school of Jesus. And the people who would have been listening this, listening to this would have been followers of Jesus as they read and heard the Gospel of John. And this is why you have these details of Jesus hiding from the crowds. And what we have in front of us, hey, listen, if you're going to be a disciple of Jesus, you need to consider some things and take some things seriously. Another way, it's, it's if someone's listening to John for the first time, or reading it, or hearing it, you'd ask, well, why should I follow Jesus? Or, you know, another way to use it, if you saw it, if you have a pen, I would encourage you to circle how many times the, the language of belief or believe is in there. It's asking the question, what does true belief look like as a follower of Jesus? So, here we have. Uh, it's a wonderful reminder to be a disciple of Jesus. There are people who have seen the signs of Jesus. It's been you know, very clear, and he's been saying it publicly, what the idea of these signs are, these miracles, but yet, they don't believe. And the very purpose of Jesus' miracles were very clear. Why? To show who he is. It's declaring his deity. It's declaring that he is the Messiah. That he is equal to God. And the very rejection of that evidence declares there's disbelief. And see, here in the Gospel of John, particularly this language of unbelief, is to show something to us. It's to declare to us it's actually a spiritual problem. It's an actual spiritual problem. It's not based on that there's unbelief because of the evidence. The evidence is very clear. It's a spiritual problem. And this is the way John wants to help us understand what unbelief is. That it is a spiritual problem. And then John doesn't shy away. He doesn't hold back to say why there is unbelief. Did you see that in verse 38? Why? So that the words of Isaiah the prophet could be fulfilled. It's another way of saying the reason why there's a rejection of the Messiah, this was actually predicted by Scripture a long time ago. This is actually God's fulfillment. This is His sovereign salvation plan being declared now. And even the language you saw, the quote of Isaiah... Seeing that Isaiah saw the glory, it's, it's, um, it's amazing to consider that God had revealed to Isaiah, well, there is this glory. The glory is going to come through a particular servant, the suffering servant. And Isaiah himself sees Christ. I don't know all the details of that. It's amazing to consider that God was revealing this to Isaiah. And now John is quoting it and saying, hey, see? This is the fulfillment of that truth. And it's another way of John saying, hey, now as we read Scripture, Old Testament particularly for the original audience, and as we hear John's Gospel maybe for the first time or the other Gospels, it's saying, hey, all of these Scriptures are ultimately pointing to the One, this Messiah, this Jesus. And this is why I think John quotes the very first passage. And if you want to see, if you've got a Bible, you'll see a little note or a letter. You'll see a little footnote underneath that. It'll point to Isaiah 53. And this is referring to a guy called the suffering servant. The Lord's servant, rejected by God's people. And God has actually exalted him. 
the suffering servant now, John is saying is, hey, guess what? It's Jesus. Jesus is the suffering servant. And the second passage is the one that I've been really wrestling with and it's been good for my soul this week. It's this passage from Isaiah 6.10. Did you see it? Did you hear it? Why is there the hardening of hearts? God himself has hardened their hearts. Let it sit there for a little bit. Right? Wait a minute, Shabu. Did you just say God hardened people's hearts from responding to the Messiah? The passage says it. Now, here's the thing. I'm going to be talking to you a little bit here. If you're visiting Canterbury and you're not someone who doesn't know Jesus... Uh, you might be wondering, what's this all about? Hang in there for a second. If you're someone who knows Jesus, maybe you've grown up in the Christian world or the Christian bubble, when you read such passages as this, you come up with a lot of assumptions. We all, including myself, come in with biases to this particular kind of statement. We all come with our various theological preferences as we hear and listen to this. This is the moment for those of us who've grown up in certain traditions might say, ah, this is it, the sovereignty of God. Bring it on. Some of us hear the word sovereignty, free will, God's will. Uh Uh-oh, here we go. Is he going to that C word, you know, that we don't really like? Some of us just read it and go, this is really hard. God's hardening the hearts of people. I thought you said, Jesus loves me. Some of us are like reading it and going, I'm just going to skip over this, pretend it's not there. Jesus loves me, the Bible tells me so. That'll that'll do. Hey, listen, friends, and if you're someone who's exploring the Christian faith, you might be sitting there going, wait, did you just tell me that the God of the Bible, your God, hardens the heart of people. Friends, whoever you are and whatever angle you're coming from, there's a purpose why John has written this. We've been saying it over and over again. Why? So that they may believe Jesus Christ is the God and in him you may have life, including something that may seem a bit hard to swallow. So you've got to remember that the people of Israel at the time are waiting for a political king to come and rescue them, to rescue them from the forces of the Roman Empire. And this is why Isaiah actually alludes to it, where God actually says, hey, if I open their hearts and they respond to this Messiah, what they will do ultimately is say they'll try to take him as king. And God's saying, no, I'm going to harden their hearts. It's a subtle way, but I think as you read Scripture, you will see it's another way of God saying you can't create your own rescue plan. God is the one who does it. And not only that, it's set by God. And see, even if you raise Jesus and make him a king over Israel, as a political king, it still doesn't deal with the major issue of all of us. Sin. And this is why... God is saying he's going to harden their hearts. The suffering servant needs to die. Death is the penalty for sin. 
And this is the moment where Jesus is being revealed as the suffering servant by John. This is the one that God said would suffer. This is the one who the people of Israel would reject as the Messiah. Why? Because of their unbelief. And their very unbelief actually has a purpose in God's salvation plan. And the very reason why God hardens the hearts is to achieve his ultimate gracious loving purpose to save the world. You know, and throughout scripture you see this, right? If you read scripture, you'll see the alluded in Old Testament over and over again. The famous one, God hardens Pharaoh's heart. Why? To achieve his salvation purpose to rescue the people out of Egypt. See, in this moment, John is stating the facts here. And this is where you get this theological term where some of you may have heard it before, talking about divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Now, that's another talk. (laughs) But in summary, as best as I can say is, it's to tell us that in this moment, yes, God hardens the heart. He's sovereign. He's involved in it. But their response of rejection means there's responsibility for that. Because they said no to God. And this is their problem. There is a spiritual unbelief. And this is God himself, yes, blinding them. You see that in verse 37? They still did not believe, despite of all the signs. Because God has blinded them. Then in verse 39, they could not believe. There's another way to read it. It's a confronting and powerful way of saying God is the one who opens the most unbelieving hearts. God is the one who does it. And it's a reminder to you and I, unbelief is a spiritual state. How are we going? Alright? Now friends, this is a dialogue. So if you want to have a chat about this after the service, please do come. So whoever you're, whatever camp you're in, welcome to Canterbury Gardens Community Church. If you want to know what did we rally around, there's a statement of faith on our website. That's what we rally around. If you hold one view or the other, great. Please don't raise it as a flag to divide this church, though. We rally around this in grace. And whichever side you're in, welcome to Canterbury. For some of us, when you read our statement of faith, we say, wow, you guys aren't as tight. Thank you. Some of us read our statement of faith and say, you're not tight enough. Hey, welcome to Canterbury Gardens. Friends, I want you to know that when we read these kind of passages, please be careful that you don't let your own personal experiences, convictions, have convictions, they're good, cloud what's in front of you. See, it's a beautiful reminder, I think, the writer of John. John is trying to make it very clear that unbelief is a spiritual thing. See, unbelief is so spiritual, it's not based on just evidence alone or knowledge alone. The evidence is there, but their hearts are hardened. It's not based on external pressures. You know, this is why the Christian faith is not like the other faiths around the world. Can you imagine for a moment if we had a commissioning services for our missionaries and we said, hey, now go, convert the nations. Here's a sword. And every time you go to a nation, 
you make sure they recant their old stuff and they say it this way. No, no, no. We don't do that. The Christian faith does not do that. Because it's a reminder that unbelief is a spiritual state and it's a reminder it's the heart condition of the human being. No matter what your view is about those things, it's a reminder that God himself is involved in this and God himself, as much as he hardens, he also softens the hearts, even the hardest of hearts, ultimately to fulfill his purpose. And it's a reminder that they're powerless to believe unless the Lord warms their heart. It's a spiritual state where God has to intervene into the heart issue of unbelief. It's a reminder to you and I that for them to see the Messiah, God has to warm them to that truth. And it's a reminder for those of us who struggle with this, and I have for many years... For various reasons, it's also a reminder to you and I, God is the author of salvation. God is God and we're not. He actually fixes the terms and agreements when it comes to saving. And he calls us to submit to his loving authority. One of the Psalms that I'm always reminded of by friends of mine who have been running the race for a long time, particularly for those of us who are gifted in evangelism, say, Shabu, salvation is of the Lord. It makes me focus back on who's in charge. But it's a word to the disciples of Jesus, then and to us, that God is the creator of all. That God is the one, because being the creator, he sends his only son into this world. The one who sets the terms in that whoever believes in Jesus will have eternal life. And doing so, it's a reminder that he is the potterer. Mankind's the clay. And as he works, he's still good and loving and gracious. And all of this is part of his salvation plan in this context. And it's a reminder to you and I. See, this didn't make sense to the early disciples. When they first hear and see these things, till after his resurrection... After the Spirit of God comes and baptizes them, they're filled and they see and they hear and everything they read now and all of Scripture has changed. And so for the disciples at the time, it would have become clear eventually why the Lord was allowing for the hardening of hearts. See, if you want to see this again, you can actually pick this up in Acts. In Acts, these are the passages that are quoted from Isaiah. This is when the Apostle Peter and Apostle Paul both quote this and say, hey, you know the reason why? Because God's purposes is not just for Jerusalem or Israel, it's for the ends of the earth. And this is what God is declaring. And friends, if you're that person, for those of us who are the God is sovereign over all, can I encourage us to be humble? That doctrine is not something that we gloat over and is not something that we use as a secret source that we eventually found out something. And sadly, particularly in the circles that I serve in, I've seen that as an excuse not to evangelize. Friends, I'm lovingly telling you that's lazy. That's not what God calls us to. 
you've missed the point because if this is something that captures our hearts, it should actually cause us to share it more. Because God is the one who will move in the hearts of people. We're called to be humble, brothers and sisters, including the lead pastor of Canterbury Gardens. And for those of us who struggle with this idea that God hardens and softens and so on, can I encourage you, don't skip it or avoid it. If you believe that God's word is true, it's there for a purpose and it's there to bring you comfort. That's a reminder as well for you and I that our hope should not be in our strategies, in our way of changing people's hearts. That we run and cry out to the God who softens the hardest hearts to come to the Son. And our hope is not in our methods. By the way, I don't mind methods. They're great. Evangelistic methods are wonderful. I grew up using them. But even this past week, I saw someone who was promoting a particular evangelistic method, and the way that they shared it was that this method is what brings people into the kingdom. Friends, you've got to remember the engine room underneath, that is the Lord. He uses the various tools to change hearts. And in front of us, there is disbelief and unbelief, and then we have belief. Well, kind of. You see that in verses 42 to 43, right? They believe, but it's a weird kind of belief. And they display belief, but there's now another heart problem going on. There's the spiritual unbelief, and now there's this other heart problem where these guys believe, but they go quiet. They don't want to be excommunicated from their religious order. Because, as the passage says, uh, they they love the glory. Uh, Maybe your um, passage says something like this. They prefer the praise of men more than the praise or glory that comes from God. Remember that glory language again? It's been coming through all of John 12, right? This is John's way of saying, hey, if you're going to come into the disciple school of Jesus, if you're going to be a disciple, it needs to be more than just believing. It's all good that you might have said a prayer. It's much beyond that. It should actually be shown in your life. And if it is going to be shown in your life, guess what? Following Jesus does come at a cost, does it not? We've been seeing that over and over again. But here in this context, it's saying, if you love the glory or praise of men more than God, you're going to be finding it very hard to be a disciple of Jesus. And see, through the history of the church, that was the reality. You read Acts, you see even the guy who wrote this was exiled for his faith to Patmos. It cost them to follow Jesus. Because for them, though, they were so captured that the God of mercy and grace would warm their unbelieving hearts and they were sold out for it. You know, it's a wonderful reminder why we do need a saviour. We need a perfect saviour, a one who's the perfect disciple and all of his earthly life, what was his concern? To bring glory to the Father. That was his one mission, all of his life. Rather than getting the praise of man. And this is why in the Gospel of John you see the wonderful, beautiful picture when the Trinity are all involved in Jesus' baptism and the Father says, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. It's a reminder, friends, that yes, unbelief is a spiritual state that God has to warm and God has to be the one to change the heart of a person. 
And it's a reminder to you and I that if that is you who, who hears that, uh, it should actually drive us to call out to the creator of the universe to warm the hearts of the coldest people that are in our lives. And it's a reminder that if you want to be a disciple of Jesus, there's no secret disciples. It needs to be declared openly and loudly and lovingly. It's a reminder that the reason why we exist if you're a disciple of Jesus is not for our glory, but for the Father's glory. And now we see Jesus speaking out loudly. In the original text, it's so powerful. It's like Jesus is crying out. You see that in verse 44. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. Whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I've come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words have a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day, for I have not spoken on my own authority. The Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment and to say and what to speak. And now that is his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Jesus is literally shouting out. Another way to say it is Jesus saying is, Pay! Hey, listen! Pay attention! Pay attention to what I'm about to say. And this is where the author, John, is trying to say, Hey, okay, you've got a contrast of unbelief. Now you've got sort of a belief, but not really because they're fearful. Well, if you want to really see what a real disciple looks like, a true disciple believes who Jesus is. And takes him at his word. A true disciple sees the father and son are one. A true disciple is no longer in darkness because they have been confronted with the light that is Jesus Christ. And we've seen that in the Gospel of John, right? Where we've seen light in the very first chapter of John. In him was life. The life was the light of men. The light shines in darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. It's like saying Jesus, the very moment he comes into human history... His physical presence is like the bright light of God shining into the darkness of this world. And then he says, it's all good for you to believe, but it also means that it needs to be displayed in your life. And this is why he says in the verses, does them and keeps them. What's he talking about? He's talking about the commands. What Jesus is saying, in this moment to be a disciple, it's all good to believe, but you take his word as commands. And the reason why is not Jesus saying, you better believe if you don't. You've got to remember, right, if you're a Jewish person listening to the commands of God, it's almost like, you better do it if we don't. Jesus' motivation is different. He says, no, no, the reason why we do this, why you should follow my commands, is unpack later in John 14. It's because simply because it displays you love him. This is why we say no to things. This is why we say yes to things of Jesus. But it's a warning as well. It's a warning of a judgment that is to come. The reason why? Because they're rejecting every word of God. In this moment, the author John is making it very clear to the disciples then and to us are the very words of Jesus. So if you can imagine, you're hearing this for the first time, you're hearing a gospel of John, and you're thinking, well, should we take this? It's not the Old Testament. Well, John's saying, no, no, no. Every single word that Jesus speaks 
has the same weight as anything that's in Old Testament scripture. Because of who he is. They are the very words of God. He is the word. And it's a reminder to you and I, everything that Jesus says, we need to take seriously. Not just the verses that we like. Including the ones that are hard for us to face. In this moment, Jesus displays why he's here. Where he says he did not come to judge the world. Did you see that? Is he, is he kind of gone a bit weird all of a sudden? One more and he's saying he does. Now he's saying he's no, no, no. He's showing his humanity in this. There's a reason why he came. To save the world. To die for the sins of the world. That's why he's here in this moment. In this chapter that's explaining it. Because earlier in John 5, he actually says, the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. You're seeing the deity of the Son. And in this moment, Jesus showing the humanity, saying, no, I've come for this very purpose to die. But there's a day coming when Jesus will return. And at that moment, friends, it's not going to be like, will he judge? He's come back to judge. Today is the day of salvation, as some would say. The point of this is that when you and I reject the commands and the statements that Jesus declares, we're rejecting God himself. And that's a judgment. Because Jesus' words have authority. The very words that were spoken, not just in the Gospel of John and all throughout Scripture, has the same weight as the Father would speak. These are commandments, not suggestions. We take them seriously. This is what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Friends, when we come to this passage, then we need to ask the question, who are we? I guess you're not going to say Jesus, right? Are you the unbelieving person who's seen it all, read it all? You go to a Christian school, you go to a youth group, you've been involved in all the various things. Your heart has become hardened to this truth. We pray God would soften your heart. Are you that semi-believing follower in Jesus? Yes, you might have given your life to Christ, but there's a sense that you're a bit fearful to go beyond that. To be a disciple means you can't. God calls you to be an out-there disciple. When it comes to Jesus' words, do we only listen to the words that we like? The ones that sit nicely for, for us, but un, we kind of ignore the ones that make us uncomfortable. Friends, the focus of this, in these words, is actually not to make ourselves to ultimately look to ourselves. <laughs> it's always to look away from ourselves to Jesus Christ. This is Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, the one who was willing to become the suffering servant. That blows my mind. The one who was willing to come into this world to die for those who are the heart and heart people, people like you and me. The one who is willing to pursue the fearful followers, people like you and me. The one who was always focused on speaking what the Father wanted him to do. And he did so joyfully, unlike you and I. And this is why he went to the cross. Because this was the Father's purpose. To display that salvation is not through your effort or my effort. 
It's through his effort and his work, just as God had designed it. Friends, this is grace. That he would call us all to believe in his name and find life in his name. Do you know what that means? Maybe this week, friends, if you are a disciple of Jesus and you know that you have a personal relationship with him, have you and I fallen into the trap of t- becoming gr- taking God's grace and salvation for granted? Does it still warm your heart? It was such a wonderful testimony that Deb shared about her um, brother-in-law. Is that right, right, Deb? Did I hear that right? Your brother? Years. Years. Of us viewing and saying, oh God, their hearts are hardened. And God softens. Friends, that's mercy and grace. And if you know someone like that, don't stop praying for them. Christ hasn't returned yet. It's not for you to choose. And if you're a disciple of Jesus, let me ask you a question. When you and I share the good news of Jesus, do we do it so in our own strength and in our own power and our own strategy? Or do we come with an attitude of, God, you have to do something in this person's heart? I'm the messenger. You convict. You save. So I invite you to surrender to his grace. And then there are some of us You've grown up at Canterbury Gardens. You've grown up in a Christian circle. I want to tell you this morning that there is a God who is the creator of the world. This God put the first humans to live under his loving authority and care. The first humans were tempted with this news, this lie from Satan the devil who comes and says, No, you do not need to be God. You can make your own salvation plan. Actually, you can be God. This lie infests every single human being till this day. This is what Christians call sin. Where we are saying to God, no, we want to be God. We will rule our lives. God in his mercy, despite of us being sinners, despite of our rebellion, sends his only son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the perfect one, to enter into this world the one who would die for your sin and my sin. The one who says to you, you've got to stop trying to save yourself, you can't. And he offers you mercy and grace. And friend, if that is you, give your life to him today. Maybe the reason why he brought you here in his providence is to warm your heart to the good news of the gospel. And if that is you, we would love to sit with you, pray with you, encourage you, and walk with you. And Christian friend, this gospel reminds us that Jesus will return again. And until that day, whatever season of life you're in, whether retired, working, whatever season you're in, God has a mission for you because the people around you, God has placed you in their lives to proclaim this good news. But do it in his power and his strength for his glory. Let me pray. Father God, we come before you. We thank you. For those of us who know you, it is a miracle that you were willing to warm our hearts. 
thank you for your grace. For those of us who don't know you, continue to help us to give our lives in faith to you. Help us to live for you as people who have found life in your name. For your glory. Amen.